everybody. This is Prescott Niles from the NAP. Talking about playing our music and being on Play That Rock and Roll. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joseph K. And like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. Today, we have a very special guest. And that is Prescott Niles, the bass player for The Knack. The Knack is, of course, most famous for having the biggest hit single of 1979, which is, of course, My Sharona. And Prescott joined me today to talk about the newest release from The Knack, which is a live album being released as part of Record Store Day 2022. The Knack Live at House of Blues is going to be in record stores across the country this weekend, April 23rd, as part of Record Store Day 2022. So be sure to keep an eye out for that. This is an album that has been in an archive uh, going back some 20 years as it was recorded at the release party for the Knack's final studio album, which was called Normal as the Next Guy, and that was released in 2001. Since being rediscovered, this recording has been cleaned up and packaged in a beautiful presentation with a blue disc, and it's a double album. So there's a lot of great uh, material from this concert. I listened to an advanced copy. It sounds great. The track selection is great. It's a really enjoyable piece, and I think definitely worth checking out. If you want to learn more about this release, go to recordstoreday.com, and you can see if it's going to be in a record store near you, or, of course, you can call your local record store uh, ahead of time, find out if it's going to be um, in their inventory this weekend. And if it is, go down and check it out. Get yourself a copy. It's definitely going to be worth your while. Now, I really like this project because, one, I love live albums, and two, I love The Knack. I think they are a wildly underrated group. There's so much more to them and their story than my Sharona. And having Prescott on today was such a great opportunity for talk about so many of those other things that make The Knack great. So in this interview you're about to hear, we, of course, talk about the new album. And Prescott tells me about his interactions and collaborations with big-name rock icons like Bruce Springsteen, Jimi Hendrix, and George Harrison. We talk about what happened with the albums that followed by Sharona and why the band ultimately broke up in the early 80s. And we also dive into the Knack's. Uh, connection to Weird Al Yankovic and how they helped kickstart his career. We talk about uh, the Knack's appearance on the 2005 uh, TV show Hit Me Baby One More Time and what that meant to the band. Finally, Prescott wraps up the conversation with some reflections on how My Sharona still affects him to this very day. This was a really fun conversation. Prescott was an open book, and he's got so many great stories, so I really hope he's someone we can have back in the future. But before we get to that, be sure to check out recordstoreday.com to see if The Knack Live at House of Blues is going to be available at your local record store. And if it is, get yourself a copy. Otherwise, you can learn more about The Knack on their website, and The Knack is also on Facebook and Twitter as well. So with that... Here's my conversation with Prescott Niles, the bassist for The Knack. Sometimes we need a night of unmitigated joy, and that's why we're here. We're going to have some fun tonight. I listened to the new album last night, live album. It was recorded at House of Blues. I found this interesting on the release day for the Normal of the Next Guy album. So we're a little over 20 years past that. What brought this whole project about? Well, before that, this is what you speak. Hello, I'm part of KNAC. That's me. There's four of us now. There are three of us. Yes, I must, I must do it for the listeners out there. Yeah. There you go. Let's How's that, look. huh? It's oh. beautiful. 
That's gorgeous. Who knew? And I'm very happy that this is coming out. We recorded, as you said, 2001 uh, under very auspicious world conditions. And I'm very happy, and I will be more than happy to um, meet you and greet you if I ever get the chance. Hope Hello. so. So whose idea was it to put the album out? Well, uh, a friend of mine, Tony Valenziano, uh, he was involved in getting our deal years ago. Um, we came out of semi-retirement after Zoom, which I, I particularly liked that album. And uh, Tony helped get us, uh, we did a video called Funhouse. I don't know if you saw that, it was out for a while. And that's the lineup that is on the live album. And it was good because Tony knew the band and gave us a good offer to come back out of, you know, nowhere land uh, in that brief time period. And it was a good idea to do like a mock TV show and do a whole concert. And later on, that's when we did the uh, House of Blues concert in 2001. Same lineup is on that album. And of course, people ask me, how do they feel playing? in front of an audience after 9-11. And I think being in New York would have had a more drastic effect on an audience and also the overall mood, which again is hard to explain. I do compare it to today's world. And the audience for our show was wonderful, very excited. I think very happy to get out and cheer us on because they hadn't seen us for a while. And comparing it to, to today's world, where even though there's a lot of sadness and stuff, there's a different vibe because of a active virus that apparently could spread anywhere at any time. The audience is a little more cautious. And after playing for people uh, with masks on, and now last few shows I've done with missing persons, to see faces is like a revelation. See smiles, you see, a, see who they're talking to. It's, it's wonderful. So uh, and to, and if I compare the times, that was an overall weird feeling for the audience. Disconnect. Lately, it's been much harder to, to get more intimacy. But that, that was a great night for us on, on many levels. I remember listening to uh, Doug's uh, talking to the crowd in between some of the tracks. And, and, and one of the songs he says, it, you know, you know, the world's not in a great, something along the lines of the world's not in a great place right now, but we're just going to have some fun. And, you know, the liner notes on the album talked about the important return to normalcy. And like you're saying, like so much of that is kind of going on right now. I went to my first concert just a couple of weeks ago where there was finally no mask or vaccine restrictions. And I'm not saying if that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying like, it's the first time in a long time that, you know, we've been able to experience that sort of thing. So it's really interesting to see that, you know, this, the parallels uh, from back then till now. Well, that's what, that's what I was thinking about in a different way. I think 9-11, because it was, I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn and I hung oh, out in wow. Manhattan. So just the fact of seeing that empty space, which the two towers represented New York for so many years and growing up and seeing it built to realize they're gone in one day. It, it's still hard to reckon with without getting too depressed. But, and this is more of a social uh, diseases we've been going through, right or wrong. But like I said, the last couple of shows I've done, you, you forget a subtle smile or even seeing some girl to a friend mention something. You're going, wow, maybe they like the song. Maybe they, there's so much communication that's missed with, with a mask on, all those signs. And that's, I guess that's just part of what we just went through. And I really appreciate seeing people and being friends again and much more social than it's been for two years. So let's talk about a little bit uh, putting together the physical product of the new album. Uh, you're doing a color disc, so it's blue, looks great. You know, how long has this been in the works? Well, believe it or not, it came out of nowhere land. I had okay. no idea Tony uh, recorded that. He knew the end, the guy who worked the board that night, because it's mostly off the board. Okay. As opposed to getting in the room as well. Nobody, I guess, knew they just take, you know, recorded it because it's our first time we played. We're promoting new songs. Um, Tony, I guess, got in touch with the guy after all these years. He never brought it up before. And I'm friends with him. And it was a rare find to have it. 
he listened to it and got the people uh, free liberty. I think they're new. They're new to my world. I don't want to get it wrong. Um, you know what I'm saying? I got to promote it right. Liberation, oh, yeah. and they okay. did a group. They did. I had no idea, and 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 I'm grateful that not only did they make a double album, which is unheard of, pretty much, and going to be doing a CD as well. But they did a great job of the cover and the artwork and the liner notes and I'm, I mean I'm surprised and really grateful for that you know Omnivore Records a few years ago put out a live album we did in LA which has a lot of the early shows which is great uh didn't have much fanfare a different situation and have it come out today and my doing an interview with you which I could have done anytime it, it's even more special and, and even talking about the knack is relevant uh, group from the past and still today, apart from Sharona. And I think this record continues that uh, quality of who we were really as a band and being with Doug and uh, Burden for 30 plus years, I had no idea, you know, it, well, it would last and we broke up every now and then too. What I like about the, it, that it being a, a live album release is number one, I'm personally a huge fan of live albums. I love going to see live music. So if that can be sort of captured, you know, on the record, that's awesome. But it makes me think of like, even before My Sharona was a hit, what I know about The Knack is that you guys were known as a crazy good live band on like the club scene and some crazy big names of rock stars came out to see you guys before you even had an album. You know, I know that Ray Manzarek and Stephen Stills and, and Petty and Springsteen, you know, those guys came out to hey, see you Eddie play live. Too. Eddie Money. Oh, Eddie Money. Oh, I love Eddie Money. Yeah. Eddie, and they were all contemporaries. Eddie Money, we did two tickets early on at the Starwood. And the best yeah. thing about all that was um, it wasn't like the record company said, hey, guys, you should jam with these people. We started playing the first shows at the Whiskey, yeah. June 1st, 78. Uh, we played, there was a good buzz, and we started playing around, but the musicianship, Bruce Gary, who I had played with in other bands, or almost played with, because every time I'd play with him, he had to go back to England to play with different, so like Jack Bruce and Mick Taylor's band. He was a, I mean, the knack, I mean, a great part of the passion. And a musicianship is part of Bruce. He drove everything. And I love playing with him. And he'd always look at me funny if he didn't like what I played, which is one of the, like, what are you looking at me for? But Bruce was like that. But we, we had seldom we had any issues. And I, I, I enjoyed playing with him so much. And that energy, Doug was a very good front man, especially in those early days. He drew the audience in. And Burton is one of the un unsung lead guitar player even to this day. And I, I'm, I'm always championing him his, his playing. His solos are technically brilliant, and let alone creatively thought up. Like we talked about even on Africa, that third album. You think he was Lee Rittenhauer, it's so good, or any of those people. So that started, and the, the appeal of the band was, I think the uh, people we mentioned, jam with us not because somebody told them to or because they liked the way we played. And back then, that's a real honor to have had yeah. those people jam with us and, and have a really good musical experience. And it was not set up. It was just, it was just, you know, the night, the mood, it was wonderful. And I'm so happy. I posted something there on Facebook because uh, somebody sent it to me about playing with Springsteen. I don't often post things, but somebody sent me the picture and the concert sounded pretty good. So I actually posted it today. And even watching it, it's hard to believe that that night was so special, wow. and, you know, and hung out with them, so to speak. Not that, you know, Stephen Stills was quite a night, too. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. Well, on the note about Springsteen, one question I've always had about the Knack, and I, I wonder if you can clear this up for me, is that I know you guys recorded a, 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 a song that Springsteen wrote, Don't Look Back. It's a heartbreak that gets stacked. Just put your foot to the floor and darling, don't look back. The song Don't Look Back, uh, you did record back in the day. Um, my understanding is that, you know, Springsteen wanted you to put it on that first album. For whatever reason, it didn't. And it showed up much later on as like on a Springsteen tribute album. Can you tell me just a little bit of, about what happened with that song? 
That was the last song we recorded. We played it. I love the song personally, and Doug did an amazing job, hopefully, of doing it. After we recorded the album, Mike Chapman, who I give a lot of credit to for, under, for not overproducing us, and he just let us play live, and I'll talk about that in a minute. He felt that that song being different had nothing to do with, you know, I'm sure Springsteen would have allowed it because he, he knew Bruce Gary, and I think that made it more of a, you know, okay, this is cool type of thing, you know? Uh, and we did a great job, but I, Mike felt that that song didn't sound like we wrote it, meaning it didn't really fit the style of the album. And that's the only reason why. And, and, it, and we went along, nobody thought about it. That's why it came out later on. Oh, and I yeah. love that track. It's another one take song. And I think the performances, and it's a great song. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Is that one that you guys would include maybe in your live sets? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we throw it in intermittently. Sometimes we threw in a lot of songs as we'll talk about what covers we did, but that song was really a great song, especially maybe as a, as a follow-up encore. Cause it has a lot, it's like the who in a way that it's bombastic. The drumming is, is wonderful on it as well. And it's a great pop song too. So uh, thank you, Bruce. Oh yeah. Well, Springsteen definitely has a style. Like when I heard Springsteen wrote it, I could definitely sort of hear his voice in the version, but a mark of a, of a good cover is a band making it their own as well. So I didn't, you know, when I first heard it and didn't know the history behind it, I assumed he wrote it, you know? So like, it, it doesn't sound like a total copy. It sounds like a knack song. Well, a band has a style. Usually when they, whatever song they take on is like, I'll get into the covers in, in a few minutes, but we, as every song we cover, it always became a knack song somehow because of the way we played it. We didn't copy the artist. We played the main parts, but we made it our own. And that's another thing I thought was really terrific. I mean, we could throw anything in anyway. Like the night we played with Springsteen, we did Mona. And then we said, oh, we're going to not fade away. And that's what okay. we did. And it worked in perfect sync, you know. And there's a song in the new album we'll talk about how we went from tequila to break on through, by the way which you like that. I'll tell you about that when you're ready. Yeah, let's, well, let's get to that. Cause it's not just, that was a cool, let's, let's hear about that. And then you also got to tell me about the cover of last train to Clarksville that cracked me up. I love the monkeys hearing that at the end of the, yeah, the album was awesome. Well, the other song tequila you meant tequila. Yeah, let's Hunter. start with that. Well, whenever we rehearse and we, we were tight and we did rehearse and a lot of the songs, from Get The Knack were written while we were performing because the band had its own sound. You know, Doug and Burden had done a demo with Bruce earlier on for Good Girls Don't, which Capitol refused, by the way. The song was the same song, but it's the, it's the interpretation of how we played it, I really think sold the song. Some songs, the performance helped sell the song rather than just hearing a demo, let's say, of it. Because that song, again, uh, even though we're one-hit wonders, ha-ha, uh, that was a hit. So just saying, just keep the record straight. A lot of times we jam in rehearsal. We, we play anything. I mean, we did Beatles songs, Stone songs. We did Creedence Clearwater, even the uh, traveling band we do as encore. We did Lawyers of Guns and Money, which is a great song. And there's a live version of us doing it CBGBs on YouTube, by the way. You can hear us. We did Are You Experienced? And Burton did an amazing solo on there. Um, you know, we can, the monkeys, last training clocks, well, we used to screw around with that a long time ago. We all love that song, of course, and we kind of made it more like the hoop, if you know what I mean. We did uh, that song, Hey Little Girl, Syndicate of Sound Live. Okay. And even in the early days, we do come a little bit closer. Oh, Jamie Americans. Americans. So we did our own version of it. My, one of the favorite things we did, because it was an Elvis night in L.A., uh, years later, and we, we did a few Elvis songs, and I love playing Viva Las Vegas. You can find it on YouTube. Bruce was, Bruce was doing Keith Moore, and if you can yeah. imagine what those drums would sound like. Let's go back to what you were telling me just a little bit before we started. Tell me about the Jimi Hendrix connection, because this is fascinating. Well, I lived in Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn, and I was in a blues band. I, I started, well, my dream was growing up was to play in the Yankees. Oh, and um, I was gifted baseball player and I had my heroes, Mickey Mantle, of course. And for some reason, it was easy. It came easy sports. And I always 
I never had to fill my day up not knowing what to do. And I enjoyed it. And, you know, through uh, Little League and then, you know, uh, Middle League, you know, PAL, whatever they called it back in New York, you know. But when the music scene started, of course, seeing the Beatles, like every kid in America, and I guess 80 percent figured I'm going to play music. You know, you hear interviews by people, you go, everybody was affected by that performance. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's remarkable. They even made a statistic that there was no crime during that, that show, allegedly. That must have been an interesting uh, search for that. It changed everything, even though they were before they were playing, and we all knew there was something new coming. Beach Boys were great. I loved them. But every band kind of had a, a featured, and I was reading about this too, they had a folk, uh, it was a lead singer in a band. And when George Martin was, the Beatles came to him, it was, well, who's your lead singer? Well, Paul and John sing Lee and George sometimes. It was a different format. And I think seeing everybody in that band was important as the next person. You weren't looking at the singer. You, I mean, like I said, which singer? And Ringo was, Ringo was great. And George had his thing. So that, I think, made people think, hey, I want to be in a group. I don't want to be a lead vocalist. I want to be in a group. And that started that whole movement. I wanted to be in groups. And I started to become in groups. Uh, one of the, uh, I was in a blues group in Brooklyn. We were auditioning lead singers, very, very great blues guitars, who probably disappeared somewhere. I don't know. Uh, so uh, this guy named Velvet came down to audition as lead singer. He kind of looked like Jimmy, but a taller version. He had these funky clothes on. And I said, after playing, where, where'd you get the clothes from? He says, uh, uh, I went, Jimmy, you know, gave it to me, went shopping. I said, Jimmy who? says Jimi Hendrix, and I go, really? You know, from Brooklyn, everything you doubt, right? Oh. Goes, what, are you what are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, no, no, I, I, I met Jimmy. And so I go, really? He goes, yeah. And just out of curiosity, I said, can you play a guitar? I said, can you play Foxy Lady? Now, a lot of people in Brooklyn, I mean, Hendrix was new, but a lot of people really didn't play him. And Velma just picked it up and played a few chords and it sounded like Jimmy. I said, wow, cool. Well, let's hang out one day. So about six, seven months later, I, I talked to him a couple of times. He called me, told me there was a, film, a show at Philharmonic Hall in 1968. And it's like a classical music hall, but it's awesome. And then he said we go to Jimmy's 25th birthday party, which I go, yeah, sure. We're going to go, yeah, sure, Velvet. After the show, we ended up at Jimmy's 25th birthday party at the Cheetah Club in Manhattan. I'm pretty sure it's a Cheetah Club. Now, I still couldn't believe where I was or how I got there. And I had nothing to say, you know, it was like, I was completely, I was going, wow, this is what backstage looks like, sort of. And yeah. Jimmy's 10 feet from me, which was enough. And so Velvet and I started rehearsing, doing, so, we started writing together and put a band together. The first drummer we played with, uh, funny enough, is Mark Bell, who ended up playing with the Ramones all these oh, years later. He's from yeah. Buffalo. Okay. We played with him for a little bit. We had a couple of little things happen, but let's say it wasn't, it was, it was going somewhere, but we don't know where. I mean, we'd be hanging out playing on the street corner without amps, just like, you know, like we do in New York. Uh, I went to California in the summer and I uh, was there a couple of months. And unfortunately, I get back to Woodstock later because that had only seeing and being there was amazing. Uh, so um, I was in LA Velvet called me because we just read that morning that Jimmy passed away, which is impossible to believe only because people at that age didn't start checking out as much as they did, you know, the 27 club, whatever right. club you want to call it, it was bizarre. And Jimmy was one of those people, I never thought that he was mortal, not saying he was a god, but he was bigger than life. And I, I didn't know people had ends. Because they were just beginning. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, man. It does. And I didn't know the dark side of rock because I was just coming into it. Even though I went backstage and started, like a film where I started to see how people talk to one another, the smells, the, the beautiful girls, uh, <laughs> how they jammed, you know, seeing Bill Graham in a way, watch how he talked to people. It was a good education. But this producer got in touch with me, Bob Rose, and he said, Hey, Prescott, you know, I, you know, knows me and stuff. He said, we, uh, can you get down to the studio today? You know, we're doing a session. And 
said, who's it with? He says, dad, just anybody, somebody, you know? So I said, sure, I'll do it, right? Get down there and, you know, I found it was George Harrison. What year was this? This 86. Oh, for uh, the comeback Shanghai album. Surprise. Shanghai Surprise, actually. Yeah, yeah. Now, the only reason I didn't freak is because when I lived in England, I used to go out to these nightclubs a lot in London, these private clubs. And one girl I was dating was good friends with Derek Taylor's secretary. Derek Taylor was the publicist for the Beatles. And George Harrison, you know? So I got to meet George at like discos. I danced with him because we all danced. You know, I, I had my girls dancing. Everybody danced together. So I, I mentioned to George, I said, hey, I, I danced with him. And he laughed, but he knew the knack. So I wasn't some guy that was just, you know, so at least knew the music. So yeah. I got to cut that song someplace else with him. I was a little nervous. Jim Keltner was a drummer. And yep. Jim Keltner, he played real laid back and, you know, where I'm used to pushing. Lawrence Schubert played guitar. And he played, he played with McCartney, as you know. That's when McCartney was busted in Japan. And that's oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and he's a great guitar player. And we did the song. And I had hopes to go to England to uh, record other songs. But he had met Jeff Lynne and then, of course... He did the greatest album with Jeff Lynne, and they re-recorded someplace else. So that was on the soundtrack, by the way. Okay. He, he was coming back from not doing anything. So I wish I had right. done more with him, but I do have that memory, and, and it's a good one. And, you know, maybe I could have done more, but at least I, I did two days recording with him. I do have an yeah. a, a invoice that they sent me to prove I did, saying we paid Prescott Nas for sessions. <laughs> I have that. So, uh, But to me, that was real special. I didn't take any pictures. Because I, I, I can't explain it. I wanted to, but I didn't because I didn't want to break that. Okay, well, we were, we've been talking about some of your influences and some of uh, uh, the sounds that, uh, you know, affected you and made you the musician you are. I wonder if, you know, another one of the names that, you know, we left out and, you know, he's not a, a fun name to bring up nowadays, but Phil Spector. Uh, because the song on the second album of yours that I absolutely love is The Feeling I Get, which has that Phil Spector wall of sound uh, vibe to it. Can you tell me how did that production come about? The feeling I get is you don't want to feel it with me. It's partly Brian Wilson via Phil Spector. Okay. You know, okay. Brian Wilson's hero was Phil Spector. Right. Which he alluded to. And we all love the Beach Boys when Pet Sounds, obviously, was an album that changed Paul McCartney. I mean, he tells right. it. George Martin, that album changed everything because of the skill of the songwriting. And, and Brian Wilson used bells. And it wasn't so much... And Phil Spector used anything. He doubled everybody, you know. Right. Four, 20 guitars playing the same part. The one, <laughs> he had ideas, and Brian adored it. I, I think Doug was more of an homage, not to Phil Spector, as much as Brian Wilson as well. Oh, okay, okay. Because of the slave bells. The song itself is a well-written song. Um, we never did it, I don't even, maybe early on, and I thought it was a really good song to play. It should have been around the holiday season as well. Hmm. Because the bells and mm -hmm. I think it would have it's a romantic song feeling I get it being with you I think it's a it's a wonderful lyric and was there know, any talk of releasing it as a single well the problem was after we good girls don't I felt in sort of capital we should we, and Mike Chapman years later said man we, we had two more singles we should have released he felt strong we didn't need to do a second album frustrated would have been a great single I think yeah but again you can look back and go yeah but Sharona was such a big hit. How can you follow it up with anything? Right. Yeah, because is that sort of a double-edged sword to come out of the case with a hit it, that it, strong? It was a triple-edged sword. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I, I even wrote about it. Mike was going through some difficulties, marital, when we started our second album. Yeah. It, it only had an effect in dampening his spirits. But I think Mike probably would have agreed that to underestimate the, the power of what Sharona was and the hit, hit appeal and one of the few songs really that took over the nation and the world. We had gold records from every, you know, platinum At, to in, in the capital. You better, you better come up with something that's damn good or 
pretty close to being that. Were you guys feeling the pressure from the label on that second album? Did you feel no. that that... Pro no, really? Oh, okay. I always I thought did. maybe you guys had a, a like a rush yeah, production. We just did our U.S. tour. And if we okay. had done more television, we could have read that album for another few months easily. Oh. And there was no rush at all because we started to record it after our U.S. tour. And that album cover, as I'm looking at it, look closely. You know, that picture was taken from somebody in the, taken a, a photographer took that picture of Sharona. It was just a picture. Uh, I like the insert of that album when it falls out and we're in the limos, you know. You have that there? Let's see here. Let me see if I can pull this sucker out here for the. Yeah, sure do. Now that's your album cover. Because oh, you think this one right here? Oh, well, go on the other side too. Look in the other side. See? Oh, it would have been a perfect album cover because this was this real. Yeah, fans are poking through. Yeah, you know what? That is great. Oh, okay. And that look in my face like was not fake. I was like going, what the hell am I doing here, right? This is great. I felt that one. I don't know why the art department had some issues too, but they took that picture and Doug felt it symbolized young girls, or girls in America looking up at a band, even though you don't, they should have had the boots. I always said, Doug, why don't you have the boots? Did they know what the girl's looking at? Okay. Oh, right, right, right. So, well, interesting to, to go with black and white again. But no, it's a bit of pink. Doug oh. called that. Doug called it the white, black and white, pink period. Okay. Oh, but I see what you said. Yeah. We had right. a bit of a color code, believe it or not, allegedly, and I always break it because I like purple. You know. So okay. we evolved at some point. That round trip, I'm wearing purple, by the way. That right, was a color right. album. Now this was a good effort. Again, we toured off of it, and a lot of good songs were on that album. And as far as the band was concerned, we did our first album and the second album, obviously. So it wasn't an issue. It's just that the, the business of it became a little harder because it was more criticism and we should have been maybe more available to, you know, say, okay, we'll play live. We'll do anything you guys want because mm. that song didn't define us. The second album was just a, it was a continuation, but it didn't define us. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have been much better stated. So a year after this one comes out, you put out Round Trip. That's the 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 last of the original run. Um, was there pressure maybe from the label to was there, were there expectations to land a real solid radio hit off of Round Trip? Well, not really because of the single they picked, which was to me the guy must have been tripping or something. You pay the devil. So, yeah, I'll get back yeah. to that. So after after the second album, we had toured Japan. We came back to LA. The biggest thing, the biggest show in our lives was coming up, which is the Forum. You know, to go from a troubadour to seventeen thousand sellout, literally in five hours, and it was a highlight. Certainly, the biggest highlight of that period for us. You know, and then we started to go through stuff. There was a bit of resentment. The manager, we he was a had good ideas, but he didn't know how to people manage, made a lot of enemies for us. And Doug also took a hand in maybe being a bit too acidic, not mm -hmm. psychedelic acidic, but mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of bitter, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, you gotta be explained this stuff. I, I think oh, yeah, he was bro. bitter. Uh, we broke up a few months after that, and basically, we were gonna have a party to say me, Burden, and Bruce were to continue with another singer and the manager. Within a week, we ended up firing the manager when we found out what he was up to. Uh, when John Lennon passed away, it was so devastating. I, I called Doug, you know, I talked not much, and I said, I got to come over, we got to hang out. And it was such a strong emotion. I said, we got to do this again. Man. What the hell are we doing? And that's when everybody came together and we said, okay, we're a band again. And that's a great rally point because we were devastated. Just wow. like, you know, fans. But that was one of Doug's iconic people in his life. You know, to be on stage, he kind of did some, you know, John stuff and, you know, had the even played, you know, I mean, little things about him, you know. And he, so we said, okay, let's get together. What are we going to do? Capital was going to back us. They wanted a new album. And we had a deal for three albums anyway. 
and we decided what producer to do and uh, named a lot of names but you know john that album just came out starting over or you know that song was out right right and we knew of jack douglas and we said okay let's see if jack wants to do it maybe he doesn't want to do anything and we got in touch with him and he said he wanted to work with us so we were a great band which is a good way to start out really he was still dealing with a lot of the lawsuit in new york but he came out to la we started recording a record plan and he was brilliant you know he just i mean we still did like you know quick takes you know maybe a song even africa was pretty much one take this burden solo on top of it we were a really tight band and i think I always say to people, we were not one hit wonders. We were one take wonders. <laughs> Even Sharona, I'll get back. We were one take on that song, by the way, pretty much. Wow. We were just really tight. We had the chemistry and we had the technical uh, means to do it. So uh, when we started recording with Jack, a couple of songs took longer to get the sound right. You know, there was changes of uh, sonic atmosphere, really. And the songs I thought were brilliant. The opening song, Radiating Love, is a great song. And it's a positive, upbeat song of love, really. Radiating Love, it's like, it's a great, I said, that should have been a single. The, mm. the playing on, it's phenomenal. And, and Solo Kissing's really cool. Graphica mm. was like kind of jazz, steely Danish, but a little bit of Earth, Wind and Fire. And that's, that's his burden, wrote a lot of the music, and Doug made a tone poem out. I noticed the one track you don't mention is the one they did go with as the single. Uh, one more thing. Just, you, okay. you know the song Art War? Okay. That was a punk song we did early on in the band. That's oh, a great, that's a great song. Yeah, look at yeah, the first, on YouTube, somebody put up a, a 35 millimeter film of us playing the whiskey and doing that song. Oh, and Doug's wow. doing Johnny Rot, literally. Yeah. He's got the face, he's got the attitude. It was great. That's oh, a great man. song, and I wish people would listen to that. It's a live track, and it's got balls, and it's really, it's not punk, but it's got that edge. Pay the cool. Devil was a really cool country ballad, Burden Pent. I thought the lyric, it's, wait a minute, who's paying the devil? Are we paying the devil? <laughs> the story's about a, you know, it's a different story about the business being rejected, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a great hook, but it became kind of like our death knell in a way. It, yeah. And I don't understand why a country ballad would be indicative. We were not, where were we crossing over to? You right. know, I mean, we had to be, we had to sound like the knack. And maybe those songs weren't as commercial. Maybe I don't know why they chose it. But uh, Jack did a, a remix of it in New York. He had to go back and forth from New York and, uh, they did a nettle on there or something to make it a 45. And I just, I just knew it was not the knack. Who's, nobody knew who it was. And, yeah. and it didn't go anywhere, which really broke my heart. Well, I wonder if like at that point when you put the album out and you, you maybe you weren't certain about the single they picked, was the end in sight? You know, was the breakup like, did you see that coming or were you hoping that, you know, it was going to be a hit and you could kind of write out some of the problems that you guys were having at well, that time? A lot of money was spent on the album, not so much on the recording of it. It was, but Jack was going back and forth to New York. Uh, there were other things that we were paying for studio time where we weren't there. I mean, look, mm. the first album was cost 17000 by the way. Oh, wow. We made a lot of enemies because of that, because every record company were telling oh. their artists, hey, the Knack can do it for 17, so can you. Oh, Unfortunately, yeah. the camaraderie, there was camaraderie at the same time. They go, well, screw the Knack. We're not the Knack. We want to spend 40,000 because we have, we, we want more production. So that was a bit of a backlash, you know what I mean? But um, we had big hopes and we did a tour after that and we got a lot of good reviews. There's a couple of live things on YouTube that uh, Long Island show we did. The band sounded fantastic. After that, I think uh, I think Capital wanted us to go to South America. Bruce had enough at the time. There was friction between him and Doug usually, and, and Bruce was a very in-demand session drummer too. Okay. And yeah. I think at that time, that was enough, and then it was just like, well, we're not going to South America. We did incur some debt, even though we never had debt, and we broke up for a while. I think coming off knowing that we did a great album, honestly, and a yeah. well-produced album and a well-received album, but 
you know, I, I just think it was, I don't know why we agreed to go with that choice, but I think it took away all the steam we built up. So that makes okay. sense. I'll start crying <laughs> now. Oh. <laughs> I was well, really very high in that album, meaning. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was high, very enthusiastic. You know, I, I've, I've done podcast episodes and deep dives on bands like, uh, starship and uh, survivor and bands like that and you find more often it seems it seems at least more more often than not they'll tell you the last album that they put out that was you know the hit there that the, that didn't wasn't a hit they needed it to be a hit but they felt it was the best one they did and it just didn't happen yeah. you know and it's just such a a sucky thing that happens in a lot of bands' career where they have the stuff they're the most proud of and it just doesn't click. Well, usually they say there's a sophomore curse, I guess, on the second album. Right, yep. Allegedly. Well, obviously, true, but this was different. I mean, I, I guess people still had Sharona in their minds, sure. but this was more of a sta group statement. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're really fine musicians and we can write intelligent songs with sophisticated lyrics which is what I, I think most of those lyrics are very cool. And, yeah. and, and again, they, it was so well recorded and Jack loved working with us because we made it easy. And he was, you know, he worked with Aerosmith and they were a great band, but technically we, we, we had a switch. I can't explain it. We really nailed it. And Mike Chapman, by the way, real quick, if I can go back, when we recorded Get the Knack, Blondie was starting to record down the hall from us. Oh, and, okay. You know, and Blondie were great, and they were working on Heart of Glass, and Mike had more influence, and he sung in a little arrangement, but it took a little longer to make it what it was. That's what the song dictated. We went in there, we actually did our album, uh, mixed it, and mastered it in three weeks, and Blondie was still working on Heart of Glass. Not, oh, not, okay. not to diminish, because that's a great album and a great hit, and there were probably personal things going on, but... We were in that so quick. And Mike Chapman's philosophy, again, when we did Sharona, by the way, which is the second day of recording, and you figure, well, that's the song. You've got to get perfect. We, you know, every time you, you're going to start the day, you do a run-through of a song. And Mike said, okay, let's, let's do Sharona. Let's do a run-through, you know. Mike had all the mic set up already. Everything mm. was preset. You know, he didn't. And he just had a feeling. So we went in there, we played it through. And Mike goes, okay, let's do another song. He goes, what, what do you mean? He says, I got it. I got it. You got what? <laughs> what do you mean you got it? This is the song you said you're going to get. No, he said, I got it, man. He says, can we hear it? He goes, must you? He goes, yeah. We went in and in other words, you can record a song five times, six, right. seven times. You can technically be better if there were mistakes, theoretically. Yeah. Or you might try different things because we did that song live so successfully Mike knew the first time through is, is magic if you can capture it technically and without the repetitiveness. And, my, and Mike goes, we, and we listen, we're going, damn, that's pretty good. So it was a couple of quick uh, minor overdubs. Doug did a couple of fixes. Burton did a couple of minor fixes. And that was it. And that wow. was, that's what came out, which shows you that some songs are that and some songs maybe need production. And, and I really think Mike was, he said, he, no, I really didn't produce much because I knew, and that's a good producer, by the way. And mm. he decides if he wants to put his stamp on it, and if he's a, a producer that likes a lot of production, then he's going to make his album. Yeah. You know? And Mike, Mike Chapman was brilliant because he wanted what he heard live to get it to disc and not mess with it. You know, he got the right sounds. Everything was perfect, and, and I trust we all trusted him. And there you go. So, uh, you know, if we're talking about my Sharona, one thing I, I got to bring up for just a minute at least is uh, another another part of that song's legacy is helping to kick open the door uh, for Weird Al Yankovic. Because, yeah. you know, a year after he did My Bologna. Never gonna stop, eat it up. Such a tasty snack, I always eat too much and throw up. But I'll soon be back for my, 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 guy, guy, woo! My, my, my Bologna. And I know there's a hundred million My Sharona parodies. There's really only one good one, and it's oh, Well, no, we got a whole list of, uh, of, uh, of pandemic knack songs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When my Corona came out, me and Burton did a parody of the parody. 
Hi, I'm Bert Nevere. I was the lead guitarist and co-writer of The Neck. Some people have asked whether we were going to get around to doing our own Sharona Corona parody song, because apparently there aren't enough of them. Why not, instead of another instruction video on how to wash my hands, I give them an instruction video on how to play the guitar solo in my Sharona. And with any luck, we'll get Prescott Niles, my old partner in that crime, here to join me at the end. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, I saw and that. Then, that and we cool. didn't know that there'd be variations. So some idiot put out Flurona. When the, oh. the thing of, of the flu, and I was like, come on, guys. It's like, you know, but whatever. So imitations, cool parody. Al actually sent us the demo of a recorded his home, and oh, wow. we heard and loved it, and we helped, helped uh, bring him to Capitol. Oh, okay. That's right. Yes. So, so what did you, did you ever get a chance to meet Al? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, what did you and think was, of him? I thought he was real. I thought he was funny as hell, and he had a real gift for what he saw. You know, I do people in the early '60s, like Alan Sherman, who would do parodies, even though there were other people too. But he was really smart and got a hold of something. And actually, he did a version of, of "My Baby Talks Dirty." Nobody's heard it called "My Baby Goes Burpy." <laughs> and I got to tell you. I have the cassette of it. And I'll, really? I'll, I'm going to get it to audio. I'll send to you. I mean, I'll get it to digital. It's, oh. it's, so, it's so great. It's oh, the best. Oh, that's fantastic. That's my yeah, favorite. I'd love but, to hear that. I, I, I love to hear that. Yeah, I've seen out time to time, and I wanted to be, I'm waiting, I want to be on his documentary because yeah. I just wanted to thank him for making us laugh for all these yeah. years. And, and that's really important. That's what he did. He made fun of himself, the music. And at the same time, he honored it by doing it, I thought. Well, I think that, that because because Weird Al made it about such an inane subject, making it about exactly. lunch meat, like takes yeah. sort of a, a song with some somewhat serious lyrics and then totally flips it, and that's where the comedy what was. What do you think Beavis and Butthead did? Oh, that yeah. whole MTV stuff was all about making fun. of, And that was really funny, by the way. Oh, yeah. And some people really didn't like it. <laughs> right. And I think Winger allegedly ruined his career, I think. Oh, MTV. I, know I know what you're talking about. So, yeah. I mean, it could, it could be, you know, bad. But that was that was another way of parody video of, yeah. of that particular thing. So I think it was, it's, oh, by the way, one important thing. It, we missed MTV by a year. I was going to bring this up. What What was MTV's impact? on uh was it an impact on you or did you guys split just before it happened all changing if we if 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 let's say if if we could you know things maybe stretched out longer off of the first album we didn't do it you know mtv changed everything now we had done a video of sharona in the studio and frustrated and good girls don't but nobody saw it because we didn't do the tv shows and by missing MTV, that would have been a launch pad for us. Mm. God, God knows. I'm just saying. Mm. Even if we did the Grammys and performed too, but that would have been great to be part of that generation. And all the artists like Cars and Blondie, they lasted a little longer. Maybe it had more friends in the business to make the jump. Mm. And man, I wish we were part of that because I love what was going on. Oh, you know, absolutely! It was, it was incredible. The videos and it was a lot of fun, a new territory for everybody. But I will say that when you make, when you see a video before you know the song, sometimes you can't get the video out of your head. The song loses its beauty or whatever it was. And you know what I'm saying. Sometimes you'll see a thing and go, oh, man, all you think of the video and you don't think of yeah. the song. So it's, it's kind of maybe weird in the way, that way, you know? Oh, I think, I think you're on to something there. You know, that can definitely impact how you hear a song in your head if you're picturing some funny visual from it. So let's, real quickly, let's uh, play another round of uh, Internet Fact or Fiction about uh, the time after you split up. Uh, I know it was, you know, New Year's Eve 1981. 
Was there any serious consideration about going forward as the Knack without Doug? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, only because why I'm doing this, for instance, and, you know, I've been playing with Missing Persons, which is pretty high profile band, right? Oh, yeah. In some respects. You know, people, some people that find out I'm playing with her, they'll shout out Sharona. The guitar player sometimes will think he's a smart ass and play a little bit of it, right? Oh, okay. And Dale could sing about a girl in this world, obviously, with no problem. If yeah. you get my drift. But right. I was offered pretty good money to go to Japan and put a knack together. And Bur Burton uh, doesn't want to do it for his own reasons. He, he really, when he got away from the knack, he started to, he had great gifts of composition and uh, he, he wanted to do musicals. Oh, he, really did. he had real talent. I couldn't do it. And he wrote a couple. He almost had a big run in Chicago a number of years ago, but it didn't quite work out. And those are real risky productions. And unfortunately, it didn't work out. I think I, I don't think Burden likes the lifestyle and mm. the rock and roll world as it is. I'm maybe more hardened because I'm from mm. New York. I don't know what, but I'm more ambitious and I like performing. Yeah. You know, I like recording, but I love, that's what I mean, we're talking earlier about wearing masks, you know, that oh, yeah. was the layer of weirdness, but I love watching people react. And let's say we're doing a song. If we did an act song, a missing person, I love when you're playing a song and it sounds great and you watch people get off on it. You, okay. you can't, you can't, um, you can't imagine that and you can't fake it. Right. Right. And I don't want to see, you know, Zoom crap, you know. It, yeah. I mean, it's good, but you, good for a podcast. There's a whole vibe, man. You know, it's it's yeah. electric. And, and when you're playing really well, I love, I feel really like I've done my job. When I, I'm tired after the show and I'm just going, you know, we did a great job. Missing per, not anybody I play with. And then I feel better. I can sleep better. Not saying I can. I can make a great record and feel really good. But to something mm -hmm. about the live, it's a give and take, I think, that's so important. I got one really out of left field question for you. I don't know I if you've ever been. Okay, great. It says, I, I don't know if you've ever been asked this, but uh, recently I had, uh, as a guest on the show, was uh, Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. And uh, we were oh, talking oh, about... Way, we played with them recently. Oh, did you really? The 80s thing, Lost 80s. Oh, awesome. They're great yeah, guys, great guy. and I love them. You know, they played really well. I enjoyed them. Oh, very right. cool. Absolutely. So he, he, another thing you two have in common is that uh, you were both on a TV show called Hit Me Baby One More Time in 2005. That's and uh, that was a show that I caught in high school. This is when I was getting into that this retro classic rock, new wave, that sort of sound. And I remember watching you guys on that show and uh, thinking it was pretty awesome. On that night, you played, of course, My Sharona, and then Are You Gonna Be My Girl by Jet. Can you tell me what you remember about being on that show and how you guys picked that song? Well, it was, it was an interesting idea. Uh, we love that song. We, we knew we, did, we had to do one cover. Right. And uh, that was a cool song. And we figured we'd do it our way, which was really cool. Uh, I loved doing that because the audience was really exciting. I mean, they were there and my kids were with me too, which is wonderful. My kids met Ice Cube. I mean, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Vanilla nice. Ice? Yeah, they met him. It was a big deal. Like, I remember yeah. that, right? And uh, it, was, it was great. I loved how they did it. And, and it brought us back, literally, for a little bit, I thought. And uh, we played Sharon. The audience was fantastic. It felt terrific. And afterwards, uh, you know, we lost, by the way. That I think we lost to Vanilla Ice, actually. Right. So, I a mean, great whatever. injustice. Well, yeah, but he was timely, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But it was good. It was exciting, I will say. And I enjoyed You know how I watched it? You're not going to believe this. I was supposed to watch it uh, with somebody. My kids weren't around. I ended up going to, uh, um, what's the name of that place? The electronics store. Uh, Best Buy. <laughs> I went to Best Buy. I said, I want to check out the biggest TV. I sat there on the couch by myself watching myself. <laughs> now, you could think that's pretty lonely distance, but uh, 
that's where I ended up because I didn't want to miss it. And I wanted to see what, that's how I saw the show. How's that? Oh, that's so funny. That is really funny. And I did want to grab some girl and go, Hey, that's me, you know? Right. <laughs> but uh, it was, it was a bizarre thing. I've never done that before, but it worked out that way, you know? What? And what it was, trip. it was cool watching it. So it was really, it launched us. I know we played after that and, yep. and, it was it was cool. Sharona did have an influence. Actually, earlier on, uh, being in Reality Bites was a right. big boost for us. And the song yep. charted again. And we did a U.S. tour and even did the, the, the Today Show in New York, which is really great. You know, yep. and that's when Katie Curry mixed up and called me Burton and Burton Lee. That was fascinating. No respect. Stellar work. <laughs> no respect. Uh, no, the, well, the I would say probably cool. par for the course for her. So and she ended up in other movies too, and it was it was yeah. really great to be part of the culture again. So to speak. you know, it was great, and it's yeah. still evolved. You know, well, it's it's just so good to see, you know, that that is an incredible song, and it's stood the test of time, and even though it's you know, the most famous of all your songs, having a an evergreen song like that that's on the radio every day. That's an opportunity every day for a younger fan like me who didn't grow up with you guys to find it and have it click and then look up who the band is and then find, you know, the deeper cuts and the albums and just explore from there. So Sometimes you never know. The other day, I mean, I've heard it in Trader Joe's. I've heard it in other places. But the other day I was in Ralph's and I was kind of I was peed off. You know, I was supposed to pick some uh, whatever up. I, I had to go to Ralph's. I was in a hurry. And for the life of me, I never thought I'd hear Sharona. It started to play, and I go, <laughs> "Holy cow!" And it, I listened because I, I, I looked around. I'm going, "This, this playing in it, Ralph's." Right. And it hit me in a different way, and I, I wasn't mad anymore because I realized, right. you know, okay, they're still playing the song, and I can't believe it. And here I am in Ralph's. So yeah. Just saying, it's a people's song, so to speak. Hell I'm, yeah! I'm very grateful and. I'm happy to play with other people and yeah, sometimes you, but, it, but I like because the song is cool. It's not like a boring ballad. I mean, whatever. Oh, uh, uh, no, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's played right. And again, and, and the other thing was a burden solo wanted to say earlier, unfortunately when they did the single, they cut the solo. Yes. That and, uh, uh, is a great fans out there, which kind of sucks, but all the TV shows we did in Europe, especially or Japan, they had that version up. Mm. Top of the pops, and I always say that solo, and and on the radio I hear it a lot when I'm driving an FM radio. They actually play the 45, and I'm going, darn it, you know, the, the solo was what got people into it to begin with. So, you know, I wish we can hear the whole version every now and then. By the way. Oh, I second that 100. percent Although I will say I have seen on social media some uh, rather big name guitar players, like famous guitar players, like Tracy Guns and Vernon Reed. Uh, from Living Color, yeah, yeah, mention yeah. that mention that solo specifically as being one of the greatest rock uh, solos yeah, ever. Never, so I'm really weird because I've never. I mean, people that I play with are people that know it do that, but I haven't. Burton's never. I mean, not that I want to. It's not me. I'm saying on his behalf. Sure. I, yeah. I, I wish it, throughout the next uh, career he always came up with brilliant guitar work yeah. and, and the arrangement, the craft, the tone. And, you know, but that that is a, is a signature solo, I think. And not only that, but the technique in the solo itself. And I've played it with a lot of really good guitarists, and a lot of people don't nail it either. Right. Because of the no, feel, the technique, and the timing of it, too. So it, it's really, that's cool. And I'm great. Burden came up with something equal to the task, you know, and he really did. Well, it was fun seeing you you both kind of jam on it during the, the Buy Corona video from, was, from right at the start of COVID. Yeah. So are, so are you still here from Burton fairly often? You guys Absolutely. on? Absolutely. Talked to him three days ago. Oh, awesome. awesome. I love talking okay. to he's him. Still... He's happy. He's, he's rewriting other things. He doesn't really want to get playing. I don't know why, but his why is his why. I mean, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Doesn't, he doesn't like to play. Maybe something will happen. He'll just want to play. Maybe yeah. he'll dye his hair and play. I don't know. <laughs> but he's doing well. He's all right. Yeah. He's, and, and again, I, it's really bizarre. Like I'm probably going to do Amoeba, go to record day or something. Yeah. And it's strange. It still hits me wrong that there's only me and Burton. Burton and I write. Right. It's very right. strange. I know other people have done that. A lot of people, as you know, 
it still hits me sometimes odd because I, you know, they're with you, but they're not with you. So, and Bruce had passed in 2006. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Not lymphoma cancer. He really didn't want to do the chemo and he tried alternate methods and I really didn't know how sick he was. Yeah. And Doug found out about it and, and really fought it. He, he yeah. really did fight it hard and performed all the way to the end. So I give him a lot of credit and it's really weird sometimes. You don't think about oh, I, it. Oh, I, I know the feeling. I know what you mean by that. And, you know, I know it's not the same, but at the very least on record store day, you're going to be putting out. Well, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm it's it's their, their work, you know, just as, like, yeah. as it is yours and, and they'll be there. And I, love, and I love sharing some of the stuff with you and, because again, it's it's on their behalf. I, I posted something I told you today on Facebook. Yeah, Springsteen, because it's about us, you know, and you know, it's all it is. We it's us against the world at that time. Nobody knew us, and it's really cool feeling. I know as you get older, this stuff happens. Yeah, as we both know, unfortunately, yeah. it happened maybe a little too soon. Right. Uh, no, especially yeah. a little too soon, and I'm very glad that you know I maintained my health and I could play and enjoy it. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to to be part of this and uh, be be there for record day and again promote something that even though it was 2001, it's still new to people, and that's great. Absolutely, yeah. It's a it's a very strong live record. Like I said, I listened to it last night. I really liked it. I think that's an awesome thing to put out on record store day. So anyone watching should absolutely go out and get it. Yes. Yes. You know, I'm definitely going to go, you know, we, I, I'm blessed. I have a couple of record stores around here, so I will absolutely be grabbing a copy if only for that beautiful blue disc. It looks fantastic. It's kind of cool to be able to talk about it, I think. Well, dude, I appreciate not, just how much of an open book you've been today. This has been really oh, enjoyable. It's a, it's a real pleasure. And it's coming from my heart. And also, uh, the fact that Wikipedia is so accurate, it's yeah. nice to be able to um, to maybe dispel some of the erroneous uh, thoughts. And I, I mean, it's okay, but sometimes I read stuff and go, what? Well, awesome, man. Thank you so much for everything. Thank this you. has been a real enjoyable talk. I hope you enjoyed and, and our fans and people out there and Zoomland. Hope you enjoyed this. Yeah, absolutely. And that was Prescott Niles, the bass player for the Knack talking about the new Knack album, Live at House of Blues, which is being released as part of Record Store Day 2022. And of course, we talked about so many other great topics beyond the new album as well. And for that, I have to say thank you to Prescott for being such a great guest and for sharing so many wonderful stories. He's definitely somebody I would love to have back on the show. So Prescott, please come and visit us again. It was a great time. Thank you, sir. And congrats on the new album. Be sure to check out recordstoreday.com to see if uh, this album is going to be in your local record stores or call your local record stores to see if they're going to be carrying it. And if so, get yourself a copy. You won't regret it. Otherwise, if you want to learn more about The Knack, you can, of course, find them on their website. But The Knack is also on Facebook and Twitter as well. Be sure to check out those links. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out Record Store Day this weekend and keep rocking. Good night. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this now, that means you did this part already. Thank you. There is an infinite amount of content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in Facebook groups, subreddits, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash playthatpodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash playthatrockandroll. Lots of great material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four. 
please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal. Not just because it affects the algorithm, but also because it gives me something I can point to when pitching this show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chance I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock.